This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. North of Egypt, called Canaan, or we would know it as the Promised Land. There were ups and there were downs, there was good and there was bad, but God spoke to them regularly and personally. Anyway, eventually, Jacob had 12 sons who would become what we know are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's second to the last son's name was Joseph. And Jacob loved Joseph, maybe a little too much. And like any normal family, because of that, his brothers got very jealous. One day they took it too far. Don't, kids don't do this if you're jealous. And threw their brother in a, in a hole until they were able to sell him off into Egyptian slavers that were passing by, and they told his dad that he had been killed by an animal. Well, Joseph ended up working in the palace in Egypt, and God blessed him. For example, God revealed to Joseph that a seven-year plague, or excuse me, a seven-year famine was coming on Egypt, and that they needed to repair. So Joseph told prepared. Joseph told this to Pharaoh, um, and and the famine came, and, and Egypt survived. And so the Pharaoh actually made Joseph the second in command in all of Egypt. Well, at that same time, Joseph's family back in Canaan was starving, and it got so bad that, that some of his brothers actually made the two-plus-week journey to Egypt because they heard that Egypt had food. When they showed up, Joseph recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. Long story short, they made up. Joseph invited his whole family to come live in Egypt with them. So they all returned got the 50-plus so or other relatives from Canaan. They brought them down to live in Egypt where they lived happily ever after, right? No, that brings us to the first section of Exodus where we're told that a new pharaoh had come into power who didn't know Moses or care about his God. And he was concerned that the, that the Israelites were growing too large, they were becoming too numerous, and so he enslaved them to try to cap their growth. And you've heard the story. The Israelites continued to grow. They were too numerous, so the Pharaoh ordered that every male child be executed, every Jewish male child be executed. But Moses' mother put him in a basket because she was trying to get away from it, floated him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter picked him out of the river, kept him as his own, his cute little puppy or something like that. And Moses was raised in the palace. However, when Moses was 40 years old, he witnessed some Egyptians beating a Jewish slave, and he stepped in to help, and he ended up killing the Egyptians. Now, you would hope that they would thank him for that, but they didn't. When the Egyptian authorities came looking for what happened, the, the Jews threw Moses straight under the bus and backed up a few times, and Moses had to flee for his life. He ended up in a place called Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, where he met a nice gal, married her, they had a few kids, and he began helping tend the, the, the sheep of the family, his father-in-law's sheep, which brings us finally to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So it's important to understand all of that, to understand that, 
between the end of Genesis and the, the Joseph's family coming to Egypt and the beginning of Exodus was about 400 years. That's why we need to know that. For 400 years, God was silent. For 400 years, Israel just existed, enslaved by Egypt. And not only that, but by the time we get to Exodus 3, Moses has already been in Midian for another 40 years. Which means not only had God been silent for 40, 400 years, but by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, Moses is going on 80 years old. In other words, by the time Exodus 3 rolled around, it must have felt like something was wrong. The Israelites were wondering why God hadn't come, to, why He hadn't shown up before they spent generations in slavery. They must have thought God had forgotten about them after lifetimes were lived under the whip. But Exodus 3 begins to explain that like Gandalf the wizard said, God is never late, nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. I've titled this sermon, I am stoops, or when I am stoops. And the reason for that is because when the great I am of heaven stoops from his throne and enters the lives of mortal men, things happen. Things change. People are saved. Meaning, when it is time for him to deliver his people, the God who delivers always shows up. And that's who I want to talk to you about this morning. This morning, I want to talk to you about this God we see in Exodus chapter 3, the God who delivers. Look at verses 2 through 6, where the first thing we see is that the God who delivers he scares. He scares, beginning in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now I want you to see three things in, in verses 2 through 6. First, I want, you to notice, I want you to notice that initially this burning bush was just intriguing to Moses, not scary. In verse 3, it says that, that Moses basically said, huh, that's interesting, that bush is on fire, but it's not burning the bush, I want to go check it out. I don't know, maybe he had some hot dogs he was wondering what to do with, but he's not scared yet. I want you to notice that this bush literally appears like it was on fire. This isn't some kind of weird Godfire thing, it's just fire. Which leads us to the second thing I want you to notice, which is that God told Moses to take off his shoes. Now, maybe you've, all, maybe you've wondered, why did God say to do that? Why did God tell Moses to take off his shoes in the middle of the desert? Well, still to this day, in most Middle Eastern and, and Eastern cultures, 
There's a tradition that you take off your shoes when you enter someone's home. It's a sign of respect that you're not going to track what's outside, inside their home, the place that they own. In fact, if you spent any time in the Middle East or anywhere like that, you know it's quite common to have a pile of sandals at, at the front door of every house because that tradition still carries on to today. In other words, the second thing I want you to see is that when God showed up in the middle of nowhere in Midian in a bush, that spot became his. He owned it. Meaning wherever and whenever the God who delivers shows up, that place belongs to him. That place belongs to him because he's the creator. Moses was entering the presence of God, and because God is there in the desert, that place is now holy. The place itself isn't necessarily holy, but because God showed up, this ordinary patch of desert and this little tumbleweed became a location where mankind needed to show reverence by taking off his shoes. That's the second thing I want you to see. Which brings us to the third thing I want you to see in verses 2 through 6, which is what actually frightened Moses. It's when this God introduced himself. Look again at the beginning of verse 6. He tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he's telling Moses, I'm that God that you've heard of. I'm not one of those silly Egyptian gods that you've, you've, you've heard speak of. I'm, I'm that God. He's telling Moses, take off your shoes because you are now in the presence of the God who delivers. I'm the God who delivered Abraham from, from paganism and Ur. I'm the God who delivered Isaac from the altar. I'm the guy who delivered Jacob from famine. And I'm still the God who delivered all of them from death. I am present tense the God of three dead men. And that God, the God who delivers, he is frightening. He scares. Now, now the reason I want you to notice that is because that's what Israel needed. They needed a frightening God to deliver them from a frightening enemy. They need a powerful God to deliver them from a powerful enemy. They needed a violent God to deliver them from a violent enemy. Listen, Pharaoh tried to kill all the newborn uh, Jewish males, but he missed a few. The God who delivers didn't. He killed all the firstborn Egyptians at the first Passovers, livestock and all. Pharaoh tried to slaughter all the Jews when they finally left Egypt, but they failed. Because the God who delivers drowned the entire Egyptian army, horses and all. Therefore, at the end of verse 6, Moses is on his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Listen, my friends, the God who delivers, he scares and that's still exactly who we need. We need a God who is more frightening than our sin to deliver us from it. We need a God who is more violent than the devil who would like nothing more than to destroy us. 
It's the first thing I want you to see. The God who delivers, the God who can deliver us from our enemy, he scares. But there's more to the God who delivers than just fear. Look at verses 7 through 9 where we see that 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 God, the God who delivers, he also sees. He also sees. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. How about you? Do you ever feel like God doesn't see you? Like you're alone in your struggles and in your heartache and in your pain? Do you ever feel like you're surrounded by people, but you're isolated in trouble? Well, brother or sister, if that is you today, this morning, if that's you, I want you to remember that the God who delivers is a God who sees the plight of his people. He is not an inattentive God, nor is he ignorant. Your God sees the affliction and the oppression of his people. And not only does he see it, but look at the middle of verse 7. It tells us that he also hears Those cries of pain and loneliness that no one else can hear because they come from your heart. The God who delivers, He hears them. He hears your groans and your cries and your pleas for help. But not only does He see and hear, the end of verse 7 tells us that the God who delivers also knows your suffering. That is so important. It is so important that He says this. He's not just a God who is aware of your suffering. He doesn't just just understand that it's happening. No. He appreciates it. He sympathizes with you. How the heartache and the pain in your life feels as a result of suffering. Do you look around at others who, who seem to have everything put together and, why, and, and wonder why you got dealt such a bum deal? Do you feel like you've been treated unfairly in this life? Marriage, work, children. Are those conversations that hurt to have? The God who delivers sees And he hears and he knows about our suffering. And now you might be thinking, well, that's awesome, Pastor Grant, but then why doesn't he do something about it? If he sees and he knows and he hears all of my cries and my pain and my suffering, why do I still feel this way? Well, I don't want to pretend like I can answer that question in detail for every single person in this room, but I would tell you two things. 
The first that I would tell you is this. Just like Israel and Egypt, you're never alone. You're never alone. How could God see his people's affliction if he wasn't with them? How could he hear their cries if he wasn't near them? How could he know their suffering if he wasn't present? And the same is true for you. The God who delivers will never leave you or forsake you. But that doesn't help me now. If he's with me, then why doesn't he do something about it? Well, the short answer is this. You're assuming that that where you are isn't where God wants you to be. That where you are isn't the best place for you to be. You see, God wants more for you than you want for yourself. We want our lives to be comfortable and peaceful. But God knows that peace that's never been tested is weak. He knows that hope that's never been tried is fragile. He knows that courage that hasn't been tempered is soft. The God who delivers sees your affliction, but He wants you to have the peace that's been tested by adversity. He hears your cries, your groaning, but He wants you to have the hope that's been strengthened by trials. And He knows your suffering, but He wants you to have the courage that has been hardened by endurance. That's the first thing I want you to understand about why He doesn't do anything. The second thing I would tell you is this. You see, God had promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. He told Abraham once to look at the stars, and he told him once to look at the sand, and that's how many your people are going to be. Well, great God, but only 50 of us, well, technically about 70 of us, came into Egypt. Well, listen to this. God's plan was to grow that nation that he had promised Abraham on Israel's dime, or on, on Egypt's dime. That was his plan. And that's what he did. It's exactly what he did. You see, apparently there wasn't a whole lot to do in Egypt when you're enslaved, except for make babies. And Israel got pretty good at it. In fact, like I said, about 70 people went into Egypt with Joseph, and in a few chapters, Moses is going to lead a million plus out. God has not forgotten you. The God who delivers sees you. He hears you and knows what you're going through, and He will keep His promises to you. In fact, wherever you are right now is part of Him fulfilling those promises. Even the pain, even the heartache, even the trials are Him working on His promises toward you. He will keep His promises to you. Because the God who delivers doesn't just see, and He doesn't just hear, and He doesn't just know. Look at verse 10, where lastly we see that the God who delivers also sends. The God who delivers also sends. It says, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In other words, the God who delivers does something about what he sees and what he hears and what he knows about his people's suffering and affliction. He does something about it. For 400 years, God had been silent, and it seemed as though he had forgotten about his people. 
It looked like they were left alone to fend for themselves against an enemy. They had no chance of defeating, but God had never left. (coughs) Israel was not alone. He heard Israel's cries for help. He saw the affliction of their slavery, and he sent Moses to do something about it. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and I today. You see, there was another point in history where it appeared that God had turned away. Another time where God was silent for 400 years while his people were suffering under the affliction of an enemy. Prior to the birth of Jesus, God had again been silent for 400 years. While his people were being afflicted by a far worse enemy than Egyptians. An enemy that not only made them miserable, but threatened their very eternity. God's people were helplessly enslaved to their own sin. But just like we saw in Exodus, the God who delivers saw and heard and knew His people's pain and suffering that they were experiencing under their own sin. So He sent a child to deliver them. But before He sent that child, He sent another who would be named John to proclaim, to say, hey, the God who delivers is here. I want you to listen to what John's dad, a man named Zechariah, I want you to listen to what he said when John was born in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Why? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In other words, just like the God who delivers sent Moses the shepherd to deliver Israel from her bondage to Egyptians, the God who delivers sent Jesus the Christ to deliver you and I from a far greater enemy, And he wasn't late, nor was he early, but at precisely the right time, he sent Jesus to deliver deliver us from our bondage to sin and death. And brothers and sisters, hear me when I say that God, the God who delivers, is still at work. He is still at work. He has not written a word in over 2,000 years, yet he is still delivering people through Jesus Christ. He has not said a single thing in over two millennia, yet he is still scaring uh, sin and death into retreat. And that goes for anyone, anywhere, at any time. Listen, just like he did with Moses in the bush, the God who delivers can do anything he wants with anyone he wants. If you're here this morning and, and you feel maybe like Moses and the bush, like you have less days in front of you than you have behind. Like, you're too far out there in the middle of nowhere for God to care. You're too far gone. If you feel that way, let Exodus chapter 3 tell you. There is never a place or a person who is outside the ability of of the God who delivers. Never. The God who delivers has sent Jesus Christ to deliver you as well, no matter where you are. Because the God who delivers is still the God who scares, He is still the God who sees, and He is still the God who sends. And that means, saints, just like this bush, 
just like this little patch of desert that we read about in Exodus chapter 3, wherever the God who delivers shows up, He owns that place. Listen to me, friends. That means you. Meaning if you believe that God sent Jesus to save you from your sin and you could somehow walk into your own soul, God would demand that you take your shoes off. Because He's there now. You would be standing on holy ground because it is is ground occupied by the God who delivers. And if you want proof, I'll give it to you. Because Moses asked for it. Look what he said in verse 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Interestingly, look how God doesn't even answer his question. He's like, whatever, Moses. But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the proof... The sign that God promised Moses to prove that he would be with him was was that Moses would return with all the Israelites to that same mountain to serve God, or you could say to worship him. And sure enough, they did. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 19. However, you know what? Turns out Zechariah said the exact same thing would happen when God sent Jesus. Let's look at the rest of of Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 71. He already said that he had sent Jesus. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers Abraham to grant us. Why? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, might worship Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Brothers and sisters, the God who delivers saw you and He saved you and He did it for a reason. It wasn't so your life would go better. It was so that we would worship Him. He delivered you and I so we could worship Him. You see, this this, this season of Christmas has become so corrupted with lights and gifts and parties for each other that, that we start to forget about the party that we've been invited to for the light and the gift. Parents, this this Christmas is a Sunday. And we are going to have services at 10 a.m. on Sunday. What are you going to teach your kids this Christmas? That church is too difficult to get to because we've got to open presents? Or that there is something bigger that, 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 that we should be doing? Someone who should be worshipped? In fact, I would say the writer of Hebrews spells it out for us. He said that we have not come to the same kind of mountain that Israel did. It's not a mountain that can be shaken. It's not a mountain that's on fire and smoking. It's not a mountain like theirs that couldn't be touched. 
No, the writer of Hebrews says that you and I have come to Mount Zion. That's the proof. They went to Mount Sinai to worship. We've been saved and delivered to go to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's where we've been delivered to. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been brought by the God who delivers to His mountain. It's a mountain where angels are singing and saints are worshiping because it's a mountain where the unrighteous are made righteous. It's a mountain where the broken are made whole. It's a mountain where slaves are set free by the blood of Christ who is sent to deliver. Just like Israel, the God who delivers, saw us in our affliction and he heard our cries. So he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to deliver us from our bondage to sin so that you and I could worship him just like Israel. So this morning, as we begin this Christmas season, I have one simple application for every single one of us. Let's not forget why this time of year is so joyous. Let's not forget why we celebrate Let's not forget what party we're at. Like the writer of Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking, shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence, because our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how incredibly you have displayed yourself from front to back. How clearly you have made your promises, how sure, how absolute our faith can be in you. And Father, I thank you for, for the evidence that you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ that every single one of your promises is yes and amen. Father, it is because of him that we have life. It is because of Him that we have hope. It is because of Him we have peace. It is because of Him we have community and fellowship. It is because of Him that we have anything good at all. And so it is in His name that we pray. Amen.